from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 186 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing just fantastic. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. So I'm just, uh, I'm still having my battle of the skunks outside. You know, they're not as adorable as Flower and Bambi. <laughs> so. uh, I, I love the smell of skunks, though. I miss the oh, smell well, of skunks. Really? Really? Yeah. Well, I can't imagine too many people feel that way. No, so. it's, you know, there's, and I mean this in all sincerity. I, I truly do, because they were rampant up in Pennsylvania. And, you know, it's never fun when you're, you're the one who runs over the skunk. But when you're the one who, like, follows 10 minutes after someone else hit it and it just kind of loft in the air as you're driving through it and then goes away immediately, like, I miss that. In Florida, I don't I, there are, I don't think there's skunks in central Florida, so it just... Well, the alligators ate them all. But, <laughs> but what, what do you mean it, it goes away quickly? I, I mean, here, because it's skunk-loving time, they, they send out their scent, and it just wafts and hangs in the air. And they do it at night. And it just hangs in the air I mean, quickly, all night. Like, it seeps it, into the house. Okay. I mean, it's dreadful. We never had and, it that bad. I'll, I'll just and, say that, <laughs> <laughs> and then they and then they dig up my stuff in the garden and all that, and try to get into the squirrel feeder and things. So, oh well, how clever! I know. Yes, they are. But um, I always think of flower when I go out and see what they've been up to, or I smell them. Of course. I thought, ah, yeah, I don't think Bambi and Thumper would have been as friendly to flower if he was doing that kind of <laughs> shenanigans. Anyway, all right. Well, in this episode, we are continuing our discussion of the first of Walt's nine old men, Les Clark. If you missed our previous episode, you probably want to go back and listen to it to learn about Les's early years. We left off last time with the war years, and Les remained at the Walt Disney Studio during World War II. And during this time, Les animated the Train to Bahia sequence in the Three Caballeros which is a good example of how the animators work um, retained aspects for iWorks animation as it evokes the simplicity of movement found in Ub's work. Music played a role in bringing the little train to life when Jose Carioca invites Donald Duck to join him on a train ride to the city of Bahia. And Les's animation lends a charm to the train as it chugs along to an energetic musical beat through a landscape that reminds one of a children's book illustration. Now, Les used the squash and stretch technique, and we talked about that last time, how he perfected this during the time he worked on the Silly Symphonies to bunch up the little train going over a large hill, then has it regain its bouncy rhythm on the other side. 
And the wheels have no connection to the train, and they bunch up and fall apart as well. And it's a good example of Les's rhythmic choreography that, that he did so well. And the train's journey goes well until that mischievous little bird. And Craig, have you ever figured out how we pronounce that bird's name? I mean, we've we've poorly pronounced it multiple times, so I feel like that's getting kind of close, at least. Okay, Arukuan, 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 Arukuan. Okay, that's better than what I'm doing. Arukuan bird appears and starts drawing separate tracks tracks on the ground, which causes the little train to lose all his carriages for a few moments until they all reunite as it approaches the train station. Now, during this sequence, the train experiences a range of human emotions from anxiety to relief. Despite the train not having any limbs or a face, Les is able to articulate these feelings by offsetting the locomotive parts in a way that communicates its state of mind. Its spirited personality comes out in the way the train enjoys the catchy rhythm of the samba beat, and its steam forms decorative round puffs as it travels along the tracks. And this is, well, I say this about, I think, everything in, in, in the three caballeros, but I think this is, um, one of my favorite sequences in the three caballeros. Cause yeah. it, it, it's, it's so chaotic. Exactly. Yeah. And there's something beautiful about animation that's, that is in chaos because you can see all these working parts of it. And, but it blends together in a final project product that's just, it, it's pleasing, even though it does bring that level of chaos. So, uh, it's, it, it is just fascinating, fascinating to watch. I, I would rather have too much happening on a screen when it comes to animation sometimes than than simplicity not that there's anything wrong with the simplicity uh you know it's uh, sometimes sometimes all you need is that that basic that basic shot and that's that's good enough and that's that's being masterful of the art as it is but you know it's always fun to go a little off the rails mm-hmm. uh every now and then uh especially especially when it comes to trains. And uh, also, fun fact, I looked up the phonetic spelling, and it's Araquan. 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 Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and what I like, too, is this is, you know, with Three Caballeros, and they were really pushing, um, you know, being experimental with their animation, being very modern, which Walt really wanted them to do. And uh, and I think that's why this is interesting. Very different from, you know, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Bambi, and all that. And I think that's why I'm attracted to, um, you know, the Three Caballeros and some of the other films that came out during this time. Oh yeah, no, I I would agree with that. And you know, we've we've also gushed about the the Mary Blair artwork. Uh, I also I see a foundation being built for then some of. Some of the other uh, movies that I do enjoy thoroughly, specifically uh, Alice in Wonderland. And I don't really love the plot of Alice in Wonderland at all. Um, it's it's not my favorite for that, but I, I love a lot of the animation style in it. it, mm-hmm. it I do feel like I feel like is on complete display on the three caballeros and just like the next next iteration of it, too. So um, it's it just pave the way like like 
every good thing that the Walt Disney Company did for the most part until until we reach a, little, a certain period of time. Every everything was just compounded on what they learned before in the best way possible. Yeah, and we'll get into Alice in Wonderland in a bit. It's and that and I've mentioned it previous episodes that is probably my least favorite <laughs> of most of the disney films but i agree with what you said about the animation but the attraction at disneyland is one of my favorite and i think it's the most successful at capturing the style and animation of the film than any of the other attractions dark ride attractions in disneyland's Fantasyland. i'll, I'll agree with you there wholeheartedly <laughs> Now, Les worked on the first of these package films, Make Mine Music, and then on Song of the South, on which he animated several of the minor characters. But it was on Fun and Fancy Free, where for the first time he was credited as a directing animator, and that Les was given a, sing- a signature assignment. The Mickey and the Beanstalk segment featured an unusual character, the Singing Harp, The character, which was a combination of a fairy and a musical instrument, presented animators with limitations of movement. When it came to animating the harp, only her upper body could move, and the rest was a wooden harp. So Les overcame this challenge by giving her elegant arm movements, such as when she points out where Willie the Giant is to Mickey so he can free Goofy and Donald. So Les's subtle, beautiful drawing and graceful animation gave life to the singing harp and made her a memorable character. And Les also worked on Bongo and Lulabelle in the Bongo segment. So are you a f- fan of Fun and Fancy Free? Yeah, I, you know, I, I am specifically, um, specifically the Mickey and the Beanstalk segment mm-hmm. because that's what... That's what I knew best, and and I love Willie. I just actually I, I went in to uh, to Sir Mickey's inside Magic Kingdom very recently after the last time we talked about Fun and Fancy Free, and and made sure to 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 give a look up to Willie inside that gift shop. I and you know it's it, it just. It, it was a lot of fun. It was it was one of those VHSs that I didn't have fun and fancy free, but I did have. I maybe it was a taped segment from Disney Channel, but I did have Mickey and the Beanstalk by itself, and it was it was like right there with the Three Musketeers, not Three Musketeers. What was the Prince and the Popper? Mm-hmm. Uh, those were the Prince and the Popper and Mickey and the Beanstalk were like were two that I just watched over and over and over and over again, but. Yeah, I, I I enjoy it now. It's it, it's a little it's a little slow for my taste. Uh, both of those segments put together with uh, Mickey and the Beanstalk and Bronco, but it's still it's it's enjoyable to watch every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mickey and the Beanstalk had a lot of um, breakthroughs in terms of Mickey's animation and things like that. But um, I enjoy it. I really like it. Yeah. So, but. Um, yeah, and that was I in the beginning when I was young. I saw Mickey and the Beanstalk separately, and it wasn't until I was a little older that I saw Fun and Fancy Free all together. Yeah. Now, after that, Les again worked as a directing animator on Melody Time, where he animated the bee in the Bumble Boogie segment. The bee in this segment flies through a musical nightmare, as the narrator explains in the opening of the segment. 
less needed to keep up with the high energy and rhythm of the jazz version of Rimsky-Korsakov's The Flight of the Bumblebee. And the visuals are the most surreal scenes ever animated at the Walt Disney Studio. The bee is being pursued and attacked by unfriendly flowers, musical instruments, and abstract lines until he decides to fight back and ends up um, and ends the dream. Despite there being little character development of the bee, Les is still able to make us feel sympathetic towards the little fellow. Now, I think we mentioned before when we were talking about El- Melody Time, I mentioned this is one of my favorite segments in yeah. it. I love the energy, the animation. Uh, again, less keeping up with the rhythm of the music in his animation is, I think it's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, to be completely honest with you, it is, it, it feels so similar to the, the sequence that we just talked about from Three Caballeros with the uh-huh. train and the, uh, the, the Araquan bird. It is like, it's shockingly similar to it with the chaos, uh, simplistic backgrounds, but then, you know, using that black, that black background in a lot of it to then accentuate the colors up front. Uh, it just, it, it, there is just, it's all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. it is, it is, it is so much fun. And watching, watching those two back to back, it's like you, you can see, you can see where they came from like-minded people. And again, it does build on to what's about to come in the future. Uh, but even just the bee by itself, I love, I love the animation of the bee. It's, I uh, do too. it's like that classic Disney, Disney animal character that mm-hmm. I feel like, I feel like didn't really make it out of, out of this era, but always appreciated when you do see it. But they, they use him. They, in some of their merchandise, especially flower and garden in past years. He's been used in some of the um, items, little garden items and things like that. So, you know, just like in background or something like that, little designs and everything. I have something. I don't even know what you'd call it. I guess it's like a garden sign. It's from a couple of garden festivals back and you stick it in the ground and, and he's on it. He's very prominent on it. So within a, in I think some sunflowers or something, I don't know. I've never put it out. I have to put it out this year. Interesting. Yeah. Now, although uncredited, Les then worked on Ichabod Crane for the last of the package films, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mister Toad. And after all these challenging assignments, Walt gave Les a new one that was totally different from almost everything he had worked on in the past. Les joined Eric Larson and Mark Davis in the animation of the very realistic and stunning Cinderella. Les found a live-action reference film featuring actress Helene Stanley both helpful and a curse. The footage provided the animators with acting patterns, but the challenge was how do they translate the movements of a real woman into graphic motion on paper? To be successful, animators have to find the essence and emotional core of the character and then enhance it for an animated character. Les animated Cinderella in many of her scenes, including when she delivers the invitation to the ball to her stepmother. When the stepmother reads the invitation out loud and states that every eligible maiden is to attend the royal ball, the stepmother plays along when Cinderella exclaims, That means I can go too! 
and responds if you find something suitable to wear. Less animated Cinderella's response, Oh, thank you, stepmother, showing relief, joy, and excitement in the most convincing way. And it's as if Les felt Cinderella's emotion when drawing her. And Walt encouraged Les to develop his skills as a directing animator in the Prince and Cinderella dance scene. Eric Larson worked on the beginning when they're first dancing, but Les took over for much of So This Is Love sequence. It was Les who envisioned a pathway for the romantic vision of the night sky to embrace additional vibrant and rhythmic movement. He did this by having the stardust and sparkle envelop the sky about the couple by using a figure eight and allowing the symphony of stardust to gently fall on the dancers as they twirled in slow motion. And this effect, combined with the dark purple background, the huge cypress trees, the courtyard, and the shadows in the moonlight, illustrated the romance that was developing between Cinderella and the prince. And I, I do think this is a lovely scene. Oh, it's it's one of my favorite ones. Actually, mm-hmm. when... I mean, this would have been probably back when I was 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there. But I was uh, the the girlfriend that I had at the time, way, way, way before Kylie, uh, very, very long before Kylie. Uh, she didn't grow up watching a lot of Disney movies. So I remember I remember going through and and showing showing her all of them that, you know, that I that I had in my collection and. When we got to that sequence, that was like when it really sparked back for me. Like that, this is this is true art, and uh, it's something something about everything that you mentioned the the rhythm of it, the the just almost like the the starry feel that it has to it. It just to me it it really clicks, and add in the music, just perfection. Hmm. Hmm. I thought you were going to say, and that's when you made your move. No, no. I, I, <laughs> I, I am married despite never being able to make a move. I'm, I am the last person who can make a move. I'm just not good. But uh, luckily, I don't have to worry about that, hopefully, ever again. <laughs> no. Now, Les also animated the scene in which the newly married Cinderella and Prince are riding away in the royal coach with the crowds gathered to see them off. Uh, The magical and joyous feeling of the moment is captured with the subtle movements of the couple and the gentle sway of their bodies and their way as they wave to their friends and family. And that ending has to be used in more clips. Yeah. (laughs) And montages than almost any other ending. You were not wrong about that. (laughs) (laughs) His strong animation of Cinderella led Les to being assigned to work on Walt Disney's next leading lady, Alice Alice in the film Alice in Wonderland, as a directing animator. Once again, Les worked with live-action footage to present a young girl dealing with confusing and adverse situations. Les worked on one of the most iconic scenes in the film, when Alice is inside the rabbit's house and grows so quickly and dramatically that her arms and legs stick out through the doors and windows. 
the heaviness of her body puts a strain on the timbers of the large house. This scene presented some staging challenges. Um, Alice needed to look uncomfortable and awkward, and she needed to fit into the small house in a believable way. And Les was able to use his talents as a draftsman to present unusual up-and-down shots to create the scene so that we believe Alice is trapped by her size in the house. And and that that is a classic scene that they you know use over and over again. And I think they've made a big fig out of it at one point. Oh yeah, and it's iconic. And mm-hmm. uh, like like a lot of the scenes that we've talked about with it, but it, it's iconic. But it's also just it's hilarious the concept of it and mm-hmm. how how it all plays out. It's 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 a lot of fun. I always felt sorry for the white rabbit. What happened to all his furniture? I know, right? It's, uh, <laughs> you, you really hope that it all is just some sort of weird fever dream and completely made up. Otherwise, she really ruined his life. And we're just, <laughs> who knows if Wonderland has insurance companies. And uh, it just, it's, it's making me upset just talking about it. <laughs> well, another classic scene from the film. It's a little happier. Well, sort of mm-hmm. um less worked on is a sequence where alice is at the beach with the dodo which is full of action as the dodo directs the chaos of fish lobsters birds and turtles all performing under his spell as alice joins in the commotion and i i think he captures so well in here alice's confusion as, as everybody's running around and she's jumping over them trying to stay out of their way you know talking to the dodo and it, I think it's just a superb scene. Oh, the way it's animated! It 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 actually is, and uh, it's it's not even like a it's not a pleasant scene by any means. I mean, this is one time where maybe the chaos is just a little too much. Uh, but but with that too, it's it, it it's not. It's not necessarily the most beautiful thing to work at, but the animation is is still spectacular despite all of that. And uh, the, to be quite fair, though, this is one sequence that I would just I would leave out. I don't I don't care for that much the dodo stuff, but because I, I'm not super nice on Alice. Again, I mainly just like a lot of the animation and music, yeah. but not necessarily yeah. the story. No, I agree with you, and I think Walt even realized they did not have a winner on their hands yeah. um, with Alice. So, um, well, Les's next project was to team up with Mark Davis to help animate scenes with Tinkerbell on Peter Pan. Now, Mark worked on Tink's introductory scenes while Les animated the pixie after she accidentally traps herself in a drawer. Tink knows she is not going to like Wendy, and in a close-up, we see Tink lifting up the thimble that has gotten on her head very slowly to reveal her face, and her bottom lip is pushed out to a pout. She literally turns red with jealousy, and her eyes are on fire. I think in this scene, Les tells us everything we need to know about Tinkerbell and her personality. Yeah, she's not a great person. <laughs> she's a vindictive little pixie. Yeah, that's being nice. Uh, well, I mean, we're keeping we're keeping our G rating for this episode. Maybe we'll get to PG, but uh, yeah, you're being very nice. Uh, it's I. That's what I've never understood about Tinkerbell is that people are obsessed with a character that's just really, really not great. <laughs> well, she tried to get Wendy killed. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, in the book, she's really a, a she's really something. Uh, Les also served as directing animator for Princess Tiger Lily. In the scene where she is kidnapped by Captain Hook, Les draws her with eyes reflecting determination and innocence as she waits to be saved by Peter Pan. And Les perfectly captures the peril of her situation with sensitivity and understanding. I always, I always thought that he drew Princess Tiger Lily to show, I don't know, she's so brave, brave, because, you know, yeah. she's all tied up, and she has perfect posture, and she has her chin out in defiance. Um, I, I think it, it, the animation of her was just brilliant. Again, with very few words, we, we completely know Tiger Lily. Yeah, you you took the words out of my mouth. Basically, every every descriptive word I was going to try to use from to you know specifically brave. You you literally just stole that, so I can't say it any better. Okay, well, when Captain Hook tricks Tinkerbell into betraying Peter Pan, throws her into a lantern, and wraps a bomb as a present for Peter Pan, Les shows us Tink's fear as she frantically tries to free herself from the lantern. Her facial expressions communicate her terror and desperation as she beats her fist on the glass. And as her fury grows, Tink manages to tip over the lantern and escape. So, so, so this is where, where Tink redeems herself. Yeah, I mean, she was probably beyond redemption at that point, but <laughs> it, it's close enough. But, uh, you know, a, a nerve-wracking sequence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and animated very well. Yes, I agree. After working on all these female characters, Les had a change of pace on his next assignment. Lady and the Tramp, for which he was once again a directing animator on the scenes when Lady is a puppy. One of the most memorable of these scenes is when the puppy Lady refuses to sleep in the kitchen at night and is persistent in her desire to sleep in Jim Deere and Darling's bedroom. Jim Deere makes several attempts to keep Lady downstairs by blocking the kitchen door, but she keeps finding new ways to break free. Despite the daunting staircase, which she conquers one step at a time, Lady is successful in making it up to the bedroom where she'll sleep for many, many nights. Les is able to capture the entertaining charm of a puppy's clumsiness and feet that can't quite keep up with her movements. Since Lady is a puppy, she's uncoordinated, and that is where Les finds the entertainment. With each jump up the stairs, her feet slip a few times, which shows a great determination to get where she wants to be. And eventually, she reaches the bedroom in her reward, sleeping next to Jim Deere and Darling. So now, you you are a dog owner, mm-hmm. uh, Craig. So what do you think of these scenes and how Les animated them? I Honestly, there's a lot of realism to it uh it's especially at that that young age there is a good amount of awkward awkwardness to it but it's it's literally it's spot on i still have not watched the 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 live action version of it with real dogs but i uh, i have to assume that it's it's if you watch them both back to back even if you don't care for the live action version you can at least appreciate how how they nailed the look of dogs and continue continued on to nail the look of dogs, especially like once they get to, to 101 Dalmatians, but uh, specifically with 
with Lady and the Tramp, I think I think it's pretty pretty perfect, especially mm-hmm. Lady. Mm-hmm. I agree. She's very charming. Mm-hmm. After Lady and the Tramp, Les was asked by Walt to direct television specials and educational films. Um, Walt chose three of his nine old men to become sequence directors for Sleeping Beauty. It was Eric Larson, Willie Reitherman, and Les Clark who Walt wanted for this ambitious project. As his older directors were retiring, Walt wanted to fill those positions with artists who knew animation and his philosophy about filmmaking. Amongst the sequences Les directed was the very complex opening of the film, in which large crowds make their way towards King Stephen's castle to participate in the celebration of Princess Aurora's birth. Those scenes were the most difficult to coordinate, uh, partly because of so many different cell levels. This is also the scene in which Maleficent makes her powerful entrance. And I love Sleeping Beauty. So uh, I uh, visually, I just, you know, I, I can watch it over and over again just for the artistry. And, you know, it might not be the strongest story of the Disney films, but I just think the animation and the background artistry is so gorgeous. Yeah. To me, it's one of those movies that I don't necessarily ever think of it when I'm, you know, if I want to watch a, a Disney cartoon, I don't necessarily jump to, to Sleeping Beauty because it isn't one of my top favorites, but it, it holds me in every single time. I watch it, and I can't say that about all of them. So uh, I, I I have to give it that, even though it never registers. When I finally sit down and start watching, it, it locks me in every single time. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. Maleficent, though. <laughs> oh, the live-action film? <laughs> yeah. No, no. And I never watched the sequel. So. <laughs> now, after Sleeping Beauty, Eric Larson went back to animation. Willie Reitherman stayed on as a director and eventually would become a producer of Walt Disney feature films, and Les was put in charge of directing special projects like the educational film Donald in Mathematic Land and You Are a Human Animal. And Les created the original titles for the Disneyland television series. And Les's TV producer Ken Peterson said, Les never settled for anything that wasn't top quality. His work always had that fine finish. And Donald in Mathematic Land, I think, I think this, it's brilliant. And, and every, um, parent that before your child goes off to school in first grade or something, get, get this and have them watch it so that they understand and appreciate arithmetic and math. Okay. And I mean, I would show this even when I, when I taught college and I taught what well, the students called bonehead math. It was math 101. I would show this on the first day of class to them, to, to give them, an because they already resented being in the class, because, you know, they didn't pass um, certain exams, <laughs> and they got put in there. But just to show them the importance of, of math and, and its beauty and how it was all around them. And it was just sort of a good positive way to kick off the class and um, you are a human animal. I I know that on Wonderful World of Color something, I've seen this because I remember the song that Jiminy Cricket sings with this over and over again. Okay. that's. I was going to say, I 
and like you are a human that's animal, it. something like that's yeah it. okay yeah. Uh-huh. so i don't know if i've only just heard the music too i must have seen it as well but it's not it's not ringing a bell i mean i can talk about math magic land until i fall asleep but yeah i don't i don't know but if you have not seen Math Donald and Math Magic Land and, and say, Oh, it sounds so boring, it is not. It is a spectacle. It is amazing how something that you think, Oh gosh, this sounds dull and I hate math, it's just gonna pull you right in. Yes, and it will really hurt your brain. Like especially <laughs> when they start breaking down in uh, architecture, Greek architecture, all of the squares and how you can keep finding squares in mm-hmm. every little bit of it and then break it down further and further. We're like, it just, it is so, so hard to watch because your brain, your brain just can't function. And then you're like, oh, well, you know what? It's just in architecture. And no, then they take it into just pure art and then they take it into the human body and then they just keep looking at, at the variants in, in, all of the world around us. And oh, and it, flowers and yeah, it just everything gets tied in in this. It shows it shows the importance of math overall. And then you know, I, I have to assume like there's a pole sequence in it that really talks about you know how how you play pole and the angle of hitting was, the balls and stuff. But I was just going to bring that up because I think of that every time I pick up a pool cue. Oh yeah. That's, that's <laughs> how I learned to play pool in my, in my grandparents' basement at their, their pool table. It was after watching this and trying to, to make it work in practice. And now, you know, thanks to YouTube and social media, there's, there's hundreds and thousands of videos that showcase this in a newer form. But this is like, the first that I had ever seen of it mm-hmm. way back when it's just uh, stop to finish. This short is great. And, you know, even though we're not going to talk about it, when you then pair it up with an adventure in color and, and with Ludwig von Drake, then you just have the perfect back to back combo. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Now let's briefly return to animating when he did a little bit of work on Pongo and Perdita in 101 Dalmatians, but for the rest of his career, he only worked as a director on shorts and television. And Les's last project for the studio was overseeing the 1974 production of Man, Monsters, and Mysteries, which is an educational animated featurette exploring intriguing questions about monsters, mysteries, and even the enigmatic Loch Ness Monster. And I kept thinking, you know, I have seen this. And why would I have seen this? Because, you know, I was in prep school or high school by this time. And um, I thought, why would I have seen it? Well, then I did a little researching and realized it's on the Pete's Dragon DVD, which we have. (laughs) So um, that's where I saw this. So. I do not have that DVD, so I have never seen. I, this I one. know you d- you don't like Pete's Dragon. I know, <laughs> so but I do. I like it. Oh, I, I like yeah. it. I still I still watch it. But that that was one of Carol's and my first date seeing Pete's Dragon. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. And we took well, yeah, and and we took her little brother with us. We were sort of babysitting him that day. So, <laughs> yeah, still, anyway. it's memorable. It is. It is. 
Les Clark was the only artist from Walt Disney's first generation of animators who kept up with the changes and demands that took place at the studio throughout the years. He realized early on that Walt wanted better-looking animation, more realistic draftsmanship, and nuanced performances. Les took advantage of all the in-house classes to improve his skills, and in later years he would take evening courses in portraits and landscaping after working a full day at the studio. As the level of artistry continued to increase at the studio, Les made every effort to keep up and improve his skills. Director Wilfred Jackson said of Les Clark, Les is a modest person, not at all inclined to blow his own horn. You might not suspect that he had an important part in what was done at the studio just from hearing Les talk about himself. He is one of of quite a few quiet, shy, talented, dedicated artists who worked hard and long, almost unseen and unheard of behind the scenes, to help make Walt's cartoons turn out the way they did. Now, Les retired in September 1975 from the studio and, you know, in interviews and all that with a lot of the nine old men, this is sort of the era where um, the new animators were coming in and that things still had to run through the nine old men who were still at the studio. I think John Lounsbury had already passed by this time and, uh, and there was resentment growing between with the young animators, like, why does everything have to be approved? by these old guys. So the 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 nine old men started to retire. They felt their their time had come and gone at the studio and and Les was starting to feel that way as well from everything that I read. So so he retired in September 1975. Les was the longest continuously employed member of the Walt Disney Studio. And he was employed from February 23rd, 1927 to September 30th, 1975. And then he passed away due to cancer four years after his retirement. In 1992, the Walt Disney Studio held a special event to honor those whose creative talents had inspired the world for that year. Les was awarded the Windsor McKay Award for Lifetime Achievement in Animation and for the development of Mickey Mouse. He was named a Disney legend in 1989. Les Clark is significant in Disney and animation history because he was the only animator from the silent days at the Walt Disney Studio to have great success and accomplishments well into the feature film era. Most of his contemporaries early in his career either went into story or directing or had faded into time. Les was determined to keep up with the art form as the bar became higher. His animation was sincere and was dedicated to keeping the quality of the films consistent and high. So he's probably the least remembered of the nine old men, but he definitely is one that should be remembered for his um, accomplishments, but also I think a role model for, you know, we talked about this in a previous episode. He just continuously worked to improve his craft, took classes. Um, He painted portraits and landscapes um, in his off time and after he retired, Uh, you know, took classes after school. I mean, he didn't just sort of rest on his laurels as the saying goes. And 
I think that's something that we can take away from them, no matter what our career is, whether it's we're still students, uh, uh, you know, going to school or, you know, whatever we do in our lives is that there's always ways we can constantly improve and there's always ways we can learn new things, you know. When I was a teacher, you know, I tell my students, you're going to be students for the rest of your lives because there's always things that you're going to learn and you're still going to continue to take classes and improve whatever it is your career is. And I I think Les was just such a great example of that. Um, So a lot to take away from Les's story. I Yeah, it's... uh... It's sad that more people, hopefully, now, well, it's sad that more people didn't know his name because I honestly do believe that that was the case. Uh, it's it's easy it's easy to to get confused when you have you have much more uh, highly prominent artists, especially in the nine old men. You know, your your brain does go straight to Mark Davis. You think of you think of Frank and Ollie. You, it just unfortunately mm-hmm. everyone's. Every one of them is not held on that same level, but uh, less less was a big player, and at the very least, we can hope that uh, if if you didn't know him well before, that his name will not get lost on you now, and you will remember it. Moving on, yes, absolutely, and you know, a lot of I think why we a lot of us didn't know him well is because he was shy and unassuming and quiet. He just worked hard. And he wasn't given a lot of those plum rolls because he wasn't the most vocal of the nine old men. He really didn't, from from everything I've read, put himself like out there the way some of the other nine old men did, where they really campaigned for getting the star characters. And they really competed. There's a lot of competition amongst the nine old men. And they competed for those big characters like Chimney Cricket and Tinkerbell and Maleficent or, uh, and the princesses. And Les wasn't that way. Les, Les was happy with his assignments. He was happy to fill in. He was happy to help out. He was happy to be of support. And, um, and, and that sort of, that, and that became his legacy, uh, was just always being you know, the right person at the right time to give the right um, direction and to give the right, you know, the like we talked about that rhythmic animation, just to give the right touch to the characters that he did work on. And now it's time for us to take a look back at this week in Disney history. Okay, let's see here. My um I've been in my my day job, I've been talking all day, like four hours straight, and I think towards the end there my voice was starting to give out. <laughs> a a <laughs> so, little bit. And yeah. if I do my job correctly, then hopefully people won't even know that you coughed, but okay. it's all fine. It's all good. I, I'm my throat's almost shot <clears throat> today as well yeah. too, so um if I had to talk as much as, as you have just talked this episode, then <laughs> I, I'd be in your shoes. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, you hosted today's Walt Disney World show for folks that haven't seen it yet. So you have yeah. to tune in to see Craig hosting and producing. He's definitely multitasking. 
and 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 monitoring i I didn't watch it live because i was in a training session and um so i uh leading a training session so i i didn't see the comments but i'm sure you were monitoring those as well the live chat so yeah i am all sorts (laughs) of hats (laughs) yes you were you were and doing a fine job at it too thank you but um but now for March 7th, this is a tough week because everything was awards because it, it's, it's either Academy Awards or Golden Globes or there's another one, SAG Awards. And I thought, okay, that gets old after a while, but I did throw in a few. So um, anyway, okay, March 7th, the seventh Emmy Awards. Oh yeah, Emmy, that's another one mm-hmm. are presented at the Moulin Rouge nightclub in Hollywood, California on March 7th. 1955. I wonder if they had a big elephant in front of that nightclub. I have to <laughs> look that up. Hosted by Steve Allen and broadcast on NBC, it is the first Emmy Awards ceremony to ever be televised nationally. A Disneyland television show episode was awarded an Emmy for Best Individual Program of the Year and another to Lynn Harrison and Grant K. Smith for Best Television Film Editing. What is the title of this episode? It's March 7th, 1955. Hmm. I'm not quite sure. I'm probably going to kick myself it's, over this. It's well, it's because I said it, it was the greatest um, marketing that Walt did. This is when we saw his marketing prowess because he was promoting a, tele- a, a movie. What movie? 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Operation Undersea. That's correct. It was one long commercial for a film, and he won two Emmy Awards for it. I just thought, how brilliant. It's fantastic. And I, it's one of my favorite ones. I still have it taped on my DVR downstairs from when it aired on Treasures from the Disney Vault. And uh, I, I, it, it gives enough... It gives enough of a, a sense that it's really a behind the scenes, but you're absolutely right. It's just one long commercial, but it's it's perfect. <laughs> and he was really the first one that did that because now, you know, that happens all the time. It, it does. So, and, you know, yeah. it's it also they have the one uh, for Third Man on the Mountain as well, too, that did mm-hmm. it in a very similar fashion. And um, I, I captured the King of the Leprechauns at the same yeah. time, too. So it was a recurring uh, recurring trend but it worked very well it did it did oh and it's we're coming up it's time for me to watch um darby o'gill soon yes yes we yeah. are and, and yeah. it's so nice being able to watch it on disney plus in, i know in full hd <laughs> yes and um walt disney also won um a third emmy at this for as producer for the Walt Disney um, Disneyland series, it, he got it for best variety series, including musical variety. Okay, so March 8th, actress Rhoda Williams, who is the voice of Drizella in Disney's 1950 animated Cinderella, passed away at age 75 on March 8th, 2006. Ms. Williams was also the voice and model for which audio animatronic characters for the General Electric Carousel of Progress at Disneyland from 1964 to 1973? Mm. I'll help you out. It's two characters that she was the voice and model for. Well, I mean, I'm just kind of basing this on (laughs) age and the characters. I don't. 
I have a feeling it's got to be the mother and then um, a daughter. Mm-hmm. As the well teenage too. daughter. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Isn't that amazing? She was, um, Rhoda Williams was a star of radio, television, and movies, and she appeared on such programs as Dragnet, Ironside, The Twilight Zone, and Marcus Welby, MD. All classics. So, on March 9th, Touchstone Pictures releases its first film, Splash, directed by Ron Howard and starring Tom Hanks, Daryl Hannah, and John Candy on March 9th, 1984. In a scene, Madison, who's played by Daryl Hannah, is at Bloomingdale's electrical department when she passes television sets playing Disney films. Which two films are they playing? Oh. Testing how well I pay attention. (laughs) Um, Well, we go from, like, the high to the low with this. (laughs) I I feel like one is 20,000 Leagues. Yes, 1954 is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I don't remember the other one, though. 1979's The Black Hole. Oh, our favorite movie. <laughs> yes. It's our favorite. Yes, and Touchstone Pictures has been created to allow Disney to produce non-G-rated films. Splash tells the story of a young boy saved from drowning by a beautiful mermaid, falls in love with her 20 years later when she returns to seek him out. Ron Howard's father, Rance, and brother Clint both make cameo appearances in the film. So next time you watch it, look for them. And Daryl Hannah's um, extra long hair. <laughs> if you watch it on Disney Plus. Gotta cover them buttocks. Yes. March 10th, comic actor Richard Hyden was born in London, England on March 10th, 1905. Known for playing eccentric characters, his most acclaimed role was in Rodgers and Hammerstein's 1965 film musical, The Sound of Music, in which he played the Von Trapp's family friend, Max Detweiler. Which character did he voice in Walt Disney's 1951 film, Alice in Wonderland? So I threw in, I let you know who he played in Sound of Music so that you would have a frame of reference. Um, I, I think he played the caterpillar. He did. Who Very good. Yeah. He also appeared in Disney's 1967 live-action feature, The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin. Hayden's American television credits include episodes of The Twilight Zone, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and Bewitched. Hey, maybe we'll see him on WandaVision if they play another episode of Dick Van Dyke Show on it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, those, on those pristine DVDs. Yeah. In the land of Sokovia. Mm-hmm. Oh, March 11th. The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh was released on March 11th, 1977. It accompanied which live-action film? Set in Yorkshire, England. Oh, We've talked uh, about um, it. Yeah, it was it was on Treasures from the Disney Vault on Turner Classic Movies. Yeah, I I'm sure I know what it is, but I'm going to let you give it to me. The Littlest Horse Thieves, Alistair Sims' last film. When the owner of a Yorkshire coal mine decides to destroy its ponies and replace them with steam engines, three children hatch an ingenious plan to rescue the animals. I like this film. Yeah, it's not the greatest, but I like it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I ever caught up with it after it aired on Treasures from the Disney Vault. And is it on Disney Plus right now? I don't think so. I don't think yeah. they put it on there. I'd have to check and see. Yeah, my it's all all. Everything's just blending in my head. 
March 12th, Disneyland's art director is honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Themed Entertainment Association, VIA, on March 12th, 2011. The child of Disney animators Harvey and Leota Toombs. What is the recipient's name? Kim Irvine. Correct. Yeah. Kim first took a summer job at WED in 1970 at the age of 18. Since then, she's played a key role in such Disneyland projects as producing the Haunted Mansion's Holiday Overlay and enhancing It's a Small World and many, many other things. So numerous to mention. Project Starlight, the the last iteration of the castle when it got its, its glistening up before Galaxy's Edge opened. Just mm-hmm. thing after thing after thing after thing. Yeah. She's busy. Okay, March 13th. Disney's live action Race to Witch Mountain, a modern reimagining of the 1975 Escape to Witch Mountain, was released on March 13th, 2009, starring Dwayne Johnson, which Walt, which Walt Disney Company executive make a cameo appearance as a train engineer whose locomotive crashes after it gets caught in alien crossfire. I I haven't watched this since 2009 and I I barely remember it. So I never watched it. I don't like these modern reimaginings. So it w- I remember it being actually enjoyable. I just it was one of those ones I I didn't own it. So after you know, after I watched it the first time, I just never had access to it, never bought it. So I'll watch it on Disney Plus one day. Yeah. Well, Disney chairman Dick Cook Oh, okay. He's the train engineer. The role is a nod to the fact that Cook started his career with the company as a monorail and steam locomotive engineer at Disneyland in 1970. Oh, cool. But it's, I, I would recommend it. it. Dwayne Johnson is just... He's Dwayne Johnson. I mean, come on. It's And if you haven't watched his new sitcom yet, I would also recommend that. He has a new sitcom? He, he does on uh, NBC, Young Rock. It's not really a sitcom. It's more of a oh, single camera show. Uh, I've seen the, I've seen the promos for that. It's actually shockingly good. It's it's really entertaining. I want to watch that new one. Well, now we're really off tangents, but <laughs> I want to watch that new one on. Um, I think it's NBC by the makers of Fringe. Um, I forget what it's called. Bleaker. Br- I, I, I don't know. I, it starts. Yeah, I don't remember the name. I, I know I've seen the commercial for what you're talking about, though. Yeah, people are something falls from the sky, alien spacecraft remnants or something, and everybody's floating around to find gravity and stuff like that. But I loved Fringe, and um, and I was sad to see it come to an end, but they gave it an ending at least. And so I'm looking forward to what this yeah, what this is. Debris, debris. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> bleak. I don't know where I got that from. <laughs> it looked bleak. I guess. Okay. Well, very good. You did a good job there. Thank you. All right. Well, we talked about WandaVision. And, you know, something about WandaVision. The writers are amazing. Because I was going to comment on this on last week's show. But the last two episodes of WandaVision, the writers have really done a great job of capturing and expressing grief. I mean, it's really astounding. I mean, I was moved to tears in the last episode. I mean, I could really relate to what Wanda's going through. And then, you know, the line of vis- that Vision is saying about, um, 
oh, what is grief but, you know, persevering love? And I thought, oh my gosh. I mean, so well stated. I don't know. I, I, I think that if they don't put that episode up for an Emmy just for those, that part of the show, yeah, you it, know, it would be a strong really contender. Should. Yeah. I mean, just the writing's outstanding. And, you know, and it has nothing really to do with science fiction and superheroes and all that. It's just they, they're really doing an excellent job just capturing the humanity, you know, of loss and and trying to cope with it. I mean, just really well done. I, yeah, I agree. I agree. I don't have a I don't have a lot of experience in the the grief department yet, luckily for me. I know that's that's an inevitability of life and you know, I've lost lost I lost grandparents. I've lost lost a lot of friends, but you know, no one in my immediate family and and so I'm not I'm not the most I'm not the most in touch when it comes to grief, but it was it, it was so powerfully written that the pain seeped through the television with it. And I feel like I understood it a little bit more. And that's that is a sign of fantastic writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, for folks that haven't watched WandaVision, you know, it's not all science fiction superheroes i mean there's there's a lot more going on in this show so um and it's and if i know it's something i'll I'll rewatch because there's just so many layers to it and i'm not much for going back and rewatching shows except star trek and stuff but um this one i will there's there's a lot to it more than just the the surface level of of what's going on I agree. Yeah, it's not it's not one of those shows that is telling you that you can't enjoy it until you rewatch it all. But I feel like there will be just every single time you go back and watch it, I feel like you'll you'll spot that one thing that you didn't necessarily get the yeah. first time around and and it just that's the added benefit. You're watching again because you want to ingest that content over and and re-experience it. But then when you get those new new little touches in there you didn't see before, that then just it adds to the entire experience. Yeah, once you get through the story, it's like why you rewatch a film. You know, you get it, you get the plot and what's going to happen. And when you watch it a second time, you can get this. You can watch it for the subtleties. Mm-hmm. And I think WandaVision is going to be a series like that. We can keep going back because there's so many subtleties to it and all that. So I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying it, and I'm sad that it's going to end. You know, and they keep you know. Kevin Feige and all that keeps saying, well, we don't know. It might come back. It might not. Um, I guess it all just depends what happens in the last episode. Yeah. And the director, as of the day we're recording, the director made a statement saying a lot of people will be disappointed by the finale just based on the fan theories that have unfolded as to what's going to happen. So that that really puts you puts it into being a head scratcher. But you know what? I'm even even if it's not the finale that i want to see it's it's one of those things it's kind of hard they can't it would be very difficult to ruin the entire series with just mm-hmm. one episode right at the end i'm not saying it's not possible game of thrones game of thrones <laughs> did it <laughs> that, that is true it is possible it's just it's very unlikely 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and then, um, was it yesterday? I don't know. Well, yesterday as of recording. Yeah, Comic-Con announced it's going virtual. And then and they're going to have a, a, a live event later on. But it reminded me, we haven't heard anything about Destination D 2021 yet. Because remember, that was supposed to happen this year? Yeah, I would I would assume that's that's off the books now. There's I mean it it still technically could happen in a way because you know there's a lot of there's a lot of progress moving forward with where the country should be in terms of vaccinations and and such and that's that's great news and I feel like you know I I'm not a scientist I'm just a person who tries to read as many articles as i can and listen to all the information out there to make sense of it but it feels like a thing where conventions would be a no-brainer by by fall as being possible you know granted people should still take precautions for Mm -hmm. everyone who you know uh, for other people in the room necessarily maybe those who weren't able to get vaccinated this thing this that or other doesn't really matter but it seems like we are getting to the point where we can get to it, but uh, part of me also says maybe the planning process that goes into it is it, it not enough. They don't have enough time to necessarily put it together. But I've, I, I don't know. I don't plan conventions, so <laughs> I, yeah. I oh, can't. I'm sure, you have to plan way in advance. Yeah, that's that's the only thing I can see keeping them from from jumping on it, and then potentially if. If Walt Disney World wants to keep restrictions in the parks, then technically they're gonna they're gonna want to make those same restrictions inside any events that they're they're also throwing. So you know it's it, it, it's all a big question mark. But I I I, I would be okay if they skipped Destination D, but. But yeah, I'm I'm ready to get back to to a fun convention like that. Those those have been some of the best times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, speaking of fun conventions, just a reminder that the Diz Family Reunion 2021 was rescheduled to September 9th to 10th. And, and why do I think if they reschedule Destination D, it'll be the same weekend? I don't know. <laughs> but it was usually November, I think. Destination D. Yeah. Um, and then there's also for the Diz Family Reunion. And of course, this is being put on by Give Kids the World to benefit Give Kids the World. Um, there's an after-hours event at Galaxy's Edge on September 11th. This is probably when I'm finally going to see uh, Rise of the Resistance. And um, and there will be a live podcast show, but um, no details as yet have been announced. But I'm sure you'll be a big part of that, Craig. I, we'll, we'll just have to see. So eventually they have to start asking me. <laughs> to plan out these details but you know i'm i'll be up i'll be up all night the night before like always oh, oh i'm sure so you can go to give gktw.org slash disfam.com and check out the details i haven't checked it out in the last couple of weeks to see if that i'll have to see if they added anything as long as pat sajak doesn't go it's a success Oh, yes, of course. I'm still, I'm still puzzled as to why he's there. <laughs> but uh, we'll find out. Yep. I used a few references in putting um, together this episode. There are three books I 
took a look at. Uh, the Nine Old Men, Lessons, Techniques, and Inspirations from Disney's Great Animators by Andreas Deja. Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, Masters of Animation by Don Hahn and Charles Solomon. Glimpses into the Golden Age of Disney Animation by Miriam Leslie Clark, who's the daughter of Les Clark. Couple of articles, um, online articles. 50 most influential Disney animators, the one on Les Clark. I think they listed him as number 19 on there. And um, a biography, Les Clark by Animation Resources. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on all the random shows that I'm on on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network. And uh, if you want to find me beyond that on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster, or you can email me, Craig, at WDWinfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm mbowling121. On Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Well, thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember... I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.